We continue this morning with our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Our text from Matthew 5, from the Gospel lesson, is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, or they shall be filled. They shall be filled. Now, we hear a lot of of talk, a lot of chatter about justice and righteousness these days, both from the right and from the left. Uh, What is absent is true poverty of spirit. Usually the conversation partners we're listening to are rich in spirit, vaunted in spirit, satisfied in spirit. True poverty of spirit is a rare thing. It's It's the head cardinal virtue in the Beatitudes. Also missing is this sense of mourning. Really, I mean genuine mourning for our sins and for the sins of the world. Where you don't have genuine mourning for sin, you get criticism of other people's sins. And that's generally what we hear in these discussions. Poverty of spirit, mourning, authentic meekness. And where you don't have authentic meekness, you get arrogance, you get anger. It's very important to not just jump to the fourth beatitude or any beatitude and not remember the other three. It's important to see Jesus expected us, as his followers, as his disciples, to exhibit the character of all of these Beatitudes. Because they all hang together. They all reflect the blessed life, the flourishing life of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And to have one of these states of blessedness right, entails having all the others. Again, now to put this a slightly different way, we might say there's a kind of order in the first four Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, genuine poverty of spirit leads to mourning for sin. And mourning for sin leads to meekness before God and men. And then those dispositions should and must lead us to the, a more vigorous pursuit of righteousness, right? Thirsting for justice and righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom. So with that, I want to look at the text under three headings. They're there on your outline. Righteousness, hunger and thirst, and being satisfied. So first then, righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I want to break this into like two points, righteousness. Personal righteousness Social righteousness. Okay? So first, personal righteousness. It's important to get this cleared out at the the beginning. The righteousness which is in view here is not legal. It's not the legal righteousness or the imputed righteousness or the righteousness of Christ counted to us by faith alone. It is not the righteousness by which you are justified. There are two main reasons for this. The first one is, upon your conversion, you're justified by faith alone. Christ's righteousness clothes you. You're legally acquitted, and that's a permanent status that you have forever. So you don't have to continue to hunger and thirst for it. It's a possession. Right? But secondly, and this is even clearer, right? Um, just after our text, a couple verses after, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word righteousness seven times. 
And clearly, in each instance, he's talking about lived righteousness, your conformity, your obedience to the will of God. Righteous living, not legal, legal righteousness. That's what the saints are persecuted for. So we are to seek the kingdom and its righteousness. And that means first, it means a number of things, so we can only take them one at a time. It means first, that we must hunger and thirst for increasing personal righteousness. For conformity to the image, the icon of God in Jesus Christ. Right? This is the very goal of our salvation. This is the very heart and soul of God's eternal decree, of his plan. Conformity to the image of the transfigured and glorified Christ on whom our eyes are fixed. Now, that's a rather high standard, beloved, right? That is a high standard. It's not like Jesus is trying to make you a little better here and a little better there and tweak this and tweak that and see if you can get a little progress over here. He wants us conformed as perfect human reflections of his own image, of his own glory, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Christ is the image of the eternal God. And now as man, that image is escalated to the right hand of God in heaven. And we, eyes fixed there, are to be transfigured into the very image of Christ. You are to be a little icon of Christ in the world. So this personal, subjective righteousness is something we're to seek, right? It seeks freedom, deliverance from sin in all of its forms. Living sanctity is what's in view. Living sanctity. A kind of new, deeper obedience to Jesus is what this beatitude calls us to, at least at the outset. So that like the Lord Jesus, we want to be able to say, My food, there's the hungering metaphor, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. So we must not leave this behind. Often this beatitude, people see hungering, thirsting for righteousness, and the first thing they want to do is talk about politics. At least some do, right? Left and right. But the first thing, the first righteousness we're hungering and thirsting for is our own. Reflection of Jesus Christ. And secondly then, yes, the text does speak to social righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness also has a public, social, political, even international dimension. Right? To desire God's kingdom and God's righteousness is to long for the full revelation of God's kingly reign to be manifest in the earth. It means we desire justice. Frankly, we desire a justice which often transcends the cries for justice that I hear. We desire deliverance of the oppressed, the living and the dead oppressed. We desire the vindication of all the martyrs, the protection of widows and orphans, the end of all violence and bloodshed. This means that you are a prophetic people in the earth, to be anointed with the Spirit of Christ is to be a prophet. And that means we cry out with the prophet Amos, right, who said, let justice roll down like the rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
And we are, we are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness if we settle down into a comfortable arrangement with the status quo, with the world as it is now. We are, at, we are in a kind of perpetual war with the status quo, both within ourselves and outside of ourselves. We must work as God leads us and gifts us for justice, for righteousness now. Now, that'll take different forms with different Christian gifts and callings, but the church collectively is called to this. And we must long for and desire the coming reign, the habitation of righteousness. On this very beatitude, Martin Luther said this. He said, our hungering and thirsting looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and the maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end. And then he makes a very pragmatic remark. He says, if you can't make the world completely pious, then do what you can. Do what you can. The second point here, then, is hunger and thirst. So we've talked a little bit about the righteousness We'll have more to say about it, but the second point is hunger and thirst. Notice the text. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's really important to see this, and Augustine developed this way back in the 4th century, right? Virtually all of our problems have to do with our desires. We are desiring creatures in a very fundamental way, and yet our desires are disordered. They're disordered. We naturally, easily want the wrong things. Even more so for Christians, we want the right things in the wrong way. Right? We are masters at that, wanting the right things in the wrong way. We have this basic ability to substitute the creation for the creator. Or the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of God. So, human longing. Human hungering and thirsting are easily derailed. It's very important that we understand this about ourselves. Certainly we can see it in the culture around us, right? The world hungers and thirsts for happiness, for blessedness, and they're starving. Because it turns out that happiness is an end achieved only indirectly in the pursuit of higher goods. If you go straight at it, you never get it. So, one is reminded here of the words the prophet Isaiah said to his contemporaries when he, when he looked out on them and their disordered desires and their thirsting and hungering for things. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? It does not have the ability to satisfy your human hunger. And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Jesus is drawing on this text and a, and a few others in the Old Testament in this beatitude. And yet, desire is not eradicated by the gospel. It has to be redirected, reformed, reordered to God and his kingdom. So right here, in measuring your desire, we kind of have a barometer for the state of our souls. And I want to spend a minute on this because it's easy to gloss over these words, hunger and thirst. But these these words, hunger and thirst in the text, are very strong vivid words that our Lord uses. They are words that speak to our passions. 
They are not primarily you know, intellectual, cognitive, mental categories. These are visceral words, words that go to your gut. They pertain to the depth of a person's longing, to your spiritually rumbling stomach, and to your spiritually parched throat. Right? This hunger of which our Lord speaks is not akin to missing a meal or two and feeling hunger pains. He's not saying, you know what, I have a mild yearning to be a better person. I would like to improve in this area of my life, and it would be wonderful if America could improve some along the way as well. He's not talking about anything like that. He's speaking of a burning intensity, of an appetite that is not easily sated or curbed no matter how often God fills it. Calvin says of these people in this beatitude that in the midst of want and loss of rights, they lift up anxious sighs, straining after nothing but righteousness. They languish like starving men. Right? So hunger and thirst here are, please get this, they are desperate words. These are desperate people. These, are, these words are elemental life cravings. Those with this appetite experience a sort of spiritual famine. Hunger here is a kind of starvation. And thirsting is a kind of dehydration. This is the poor in spirit metaphor. Shifted into the realm of your appetites, right? Poor in spirit, hungering, thirsting, starving, dehydrated. So the Christian life then, as we've said before, is not manageable. It is not comfortable. It's turbulent. And it must have a certain vigorous, joyful desperation about it. If it is to be authentic, it must have a certain vigorous, joyful desperation about it. I find the desperation absent a lot. I don't know about you. Or maybe we have it and we just think, am I the only person this desperate? Am I the only person in this much perpetual need of grace? If there's no desperation, there's no Christian life being lived. There's something else happening. Hungry and thirsty people, as Jesus uses these Greek words, are desperate people. They are single-minded, and they are in earnest about finding food and drink because life, life itself, life itself is not possible for them without this righteousness. We must have this righteousness. And God expects his children to be in this state. It's an astonishing beatitude, like all of them, really. He expects us to be in this state, which is why Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Right? Thirsting is the beginning of coming. Right? Come to the waters. If you have no money, you have nothing, you're bankrupt in yourself, come and buy and eat. It's a magnificent invitation in the prophets. And then the one to whom Isaiah points stands up in the temple and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? The glorified Jesus gives you this gift of the Spirit as living water to satisfy our parched thirsty existence, and we need to keep drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. Even as he himself, remember, is the bread of heaven. 
come down to satisfy our hunger. Immediately these words, hunger, thirst for righteousness, direct us to him. And this, this summons to come is found all the way at the very end, the very end of the Bible. It's in Revelation 22. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires, there's our word, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's the last command to the church in Holy Scripture. It assumes, the Scripture assumes and Jesus assumes that he's dressing hungry and thirsty people. So hungering and thirsting for righteousness means, chiefly, centrally, a burning passion pursuit of God in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we tend to think, I think, that we have this part wired, and now we just need to know, okay, God, what do you want me to do? But we were to seek his face, and then he'll tell us what to do, to be sure. But don't skip over this, right? At the heart of this pursuit is a pursuit of God in Christ. And that means, right, it means that communion with the exalted Christ and through Christ with the all-glorious Holy Trinity is what we hunger and thirst for above all things. C.S. Lewis wrote this. It's a famous quote. Someone sent it to me this week, so I, I thought it would be useful here. He says, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we, are to leave, that we leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That's a, that's a useful quotation for our hour, I think. To long for justice, even properly defined biblical justice, right? more than one longs for the light of God's own face for God's own sake, is idolatry. It's just very Christian-sounding idolatry. But it's out of proportion. It's out of order. God in Jesus Christ is what we are hungering and thirsting for primarily, even before personal righteousness, Right? If you seek personal righteousness directly, like I want to be a more patient person or I want to be kind, you end up in some sort of a book of virtues world where you're cultivating virtue and you can pat yourself on the back for the progress you've made. We are always seeking the face of God and Jesus Christ first and then growing in virtue as a result. And the same thing with social and political righteousness. They're real, they're important, but they're downstream. I mean, they have to be downstream, right? Think about it this way. Righteousness is a property of the divine being. It is a divine attribute. 
So you can't just you just can't yank righteousness down and say, okay, let's go implement some righteousness over here. Right? That's to treat God like he's some kind of a like a storage container for properties. Righteousness is a property of the divine being. It's only secondarily a property of a person or the property of an institution or even a nation. So what's in view here then is the longing or the panting of which the psalmist spoke. We heard this in the Old Testament lesson. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants or thirsts for the living God. Or to paraphrase Lewis, right? No panting for righteousness without panting for the living God himself. Or you can get this if you listen to Psalm 63. Now, this was in our call to worship this morning. Psalm 63. And if you want to hear the accents of desperation, of panting for God, I commend Psalm 63 to you. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, this is a different scale, right? This is a, a key change of desire, right? We're happy with a lot less than this. Right? We'd be happy if our guy won the election. Right? This is a different change of desire. It's on a different order. My whole being Thirst after you, O oh God, as if I'm in a dry and parched and desert land. The Trinity itself is the homeland of our heart's true desires. And you can cultivate. It takes a lifetime. It takes eternity to cultivate this. If you want to start with this, though, we had a Sunday school class here about five years ago where we used a little skinny book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. So if you want to start and cultivating a sheer delight and exhilaration in God, it's a hundred-page book. It's accessible. The Trinity is the homeland of our heart's desire because he is the desire of the nations. He is, in Jeremiah's words, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Right? To thirst for him, then, is to thirst for righteousness. So we might ask, okay, fine. What, what does all this practically mean? I think I can give you a practical test that Scripture gives us. Concretely, this longing for Christ our righteousness is correlated to, can be correlated to, can be proportionate to our longing for Holy Scripture. Right? That's the place we have to go, right? It's the only authorized place where you're going to hear the voice of the glorified Christ speak to you in the Spirit. As I've said before, Augustine calls Scripture the face of God for now. That is one of the most beautiful metaphors of, for Scripture I have ever heard in my life. It's the, he know, Augustine knows he wants to look on God's face. He knows that's not going to happen in this life. But he knows we have the face of God for now in Holy Scripture. And one can almost picture... You know, the hand of his mind, you know, running over the liniments and the lines and the creases and the cracks and the splendor of the face of God in the text, right? Then the psalmist exemplifies this throughout that magnificent ode to the law, Psalm 119. 
You read through Psalm 119, here's what you hear. Longing, panting, weeping, groaning, desiring, 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 desiring. Desiring the word of God and the God of the word. And wanting that God to act for justice and righteousness in the earth, to be sure. Job says the same thing. Chapter 23 of Job, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. That's astonishing, really. It's one of those things we kind of pass over. It's like when the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I love your law more than thousands of pieces of silver. That's hyperbole. He likes to read the Bible a couple times a week. Jeremiah famously said, and you guys all know this, right? He said, when your words were found, I ate them. They were my joy. They were my heart's delight, for I bear your name. So this is what it means to bear God's name, to eat the word of God. Amos says that a spiritual famine is produced by the absence of hearing the word of God. Right? And then we have our Lord Jesus himself literally physically hungry in the wilderness, telling us that man's deepest desire is to live by every single word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what we are to eat. If you're a hungry person and a thirsty person, right? these words are to be eaten, they're to be assimilated. You are to inhabit and indwell these words. Right? The calling here, right? this abiding in Christ through the word, is an extraordinarily rich and transformative calling. It means that your inner emotional life, you know, all that royal stuff that's down there, right? And your intellectual life, your cognitive life, is, is to inhabit, if you will, is to, is to, is to take place inside the architecture of the house of Holy Scripture. I mean, that's, how, that's what inhabit means, or to indwell the word. So that if someone were to crack open your soul, and look at your emotional life and your intellectual life and your random thinking, they would find the text of Holy Scripture, create the phrases, the cadences, the structures. See, we, we have casual dalliances with Scripture because we're not that hungry and we're not that thirsty, really. But hungry and thirsty people inhabit the house of Scripture. They eat it. Right? And the, the fourth century, uh, the great biblical scholar Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate has a famous saying where he says, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Now we could tweak that to read, an absence of a desire for Scripture is an absence of hungering and thirsting for Christ. There's just simply no surer way to measure the intensity of our hunger than by asking about our desire here, our sense of perpetual need for Holy Scripture. Because that's the place, at least temporarily, for satisfying the hunger, for slaking our thirst. And that brings me to the third point, being satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or, or filled. You remember when Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary in Luke's Gospel, Mary goes on to extol God and her Magnificat. And he t she talks about how the rich are sent away empty-handed and the poor and the hungry shall be filled with good things. That's the same word as satisfied in the Beatitude. And our Lord is fleshing that out now. Satisfied here means 
filled, having plenty. It's a state of abundance. It's a state of perpetual refreshment in God. Now, as usual, we have to refer here to the already and the not yet. Should surprise nobody. The now and the later. So, even now, right? Even now, Jesus gives us the Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us his body and blood in the sacrament. He fills us. He satisfies us now. But not in such a way that our hungering and thirsting ever comes to an end. If anything, he whets our appetites for more. It's a great paradox in the Christian life, right? Paradoxically, this is a satisfaction that leads to longing. It's a filling that leads to a new hungering and thirsting. It's a fullness that leads to poverty of spirit. We find, or at least we should find, that our hunger increases in the very act of it being satisfied. That is the mystery of the Christian life. He gives us the living water of his own spirit. But it's only in earnest. It's only a down payment of what is to come. And it causes us to groan for the full inheritance. There's not enough desperation. There's not enough panting. There's not enough groaning these elemental life forces of the Christian soul. Jesus speaks to you. He shows himself to you in the written word, which is his face for now. And we yearn to see and hear the incarnate word face to face. He feeds you with bread and wine there, but that's a foretaste of the coming wedding supper of the Lamb. The word points you to the word. The sacrament points you to the feast. These things are not our goal. Right? I don't want to be reading scripture for a billion years into all eternity. Scripture will be done away with. So will the sacraments. We want the thing. We don't want the sacrament over and over again. We want the thing. It's like driving to Pittsburgh or some city. You go to Pittsburgh and there's a, there's a sign out there that says Pittsburgh 10 miles. That's like a sacrament. It points beyond itself to the city. So you're thankful for the sign. That's the sign, right? But you want to get to the city. There'd be something wrong with a person who says, give me more signs. Everything we have in this age will fade away. So, you know where this is captured beautifully? It's captured by the great uh, 12th century monk and theologian Bernard of Clairvaux who happens to be the author of our closing hymn. 12th century guy, very very influential on John Calvin. If you read Calvin's Institutes after Augustine, he quotes Bernard the most. Bernard was a great theologian in his day. He writes this song, which we'll sing later, but listen to these lines. We taste thee, O living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. This is a tasting which actually generates longing. It's a drinking which actually creates thirst for more. And thus our full satisfaction, our full filling is profoundly future. This is something I've been very slow to learn. It's taken me six decades (laughs) But John Vance used to say this all the time, to me in private and also from the pulpit. There is no created thing. There is no finite thing. There's no collection of finite things that can in the end satisfy your soul. 
Not, not, even, a, even a collection of finite Christian things won't do it. Not a Christian marriage. Not sweet, amiable, brilliant, genius Christian children. Right? Not a long, productive, healthy, fruitful Christian life. Not a set of Christian institutions. Because God has set eternity in our hearts. We have a thirst for the eternal. We want our children beyond threat. What? We want to be on the other side of death. The whole Christian life takes place in the resurrection of Jesus. Right? It's a participation in his resurrection. And he's on the other side of death, on the other side of sin, on the other side of the demonic, on the, on the other side of threat. So while these things are blessings and they can provide a kind of satisfaction, the heart will remain restless till the eschaton. Right? So it's very important to see that. We have this thirst for eschatological glory and justice. God has put it in our hearts. This is why every, people get to stations in life and they think, oh, I thought when I got here, you know, things would be better and this would, this would be that and this would be that. And I, and I remember John often saying to me, that's just not the case. You know? You're, you're going to have to deal with the basic brokenness and fallenness of this order until the next order arrives. So our, our satisfaction, our fulfilling is profoundly future. And again, if righteousness is a divine attribute, how could it be otherwise? Right? I mean, to long for righteousness is to long for God. And we're not made to be fully satisfied until we possess God in glory. You can go read Augustine's Confessions and you can see this. He recognizes that all of his yearnings. You can read C.S. Lewis, who waited very late in life to get married. Then he gets married and he says, you know what, that's not it. (laughs) We long for the coming eschatological kingdom of God and nothing short of that will satisfy our deepest desires. If we care about righteousness, right, that means we care about rectifying the past, and not just the future. Right? The victims of the Holocaust, when do they get righteousness? Or the 60 million people that Stalin killed, when are they going to get righteousness? Or the hundreds of millions of unborn children killed by abortion, when does their righteousness come? When do they inherit the earth? Right? All and all the infinite number of small acts of oppression and injustice which litter the world's sordid history in all nations, in all centuries, private, public, personal, political. When are they going to be rectified? That's what we want. I was talking to someone about about a legal situation where if you had certain kinds of laws, it would be better than other laws, which is of course true, and we should work for those sorts of things. But take the case, I said to this person, of a rape. The law might justly punish the offender, but it can't undo the trauma. Right? It can't fix the heart of the offender, and it can't remove the trauma to the woman, and it can't remove the trauma to, to downstream generations and the, the friends and families and the ripple effects. Only God can do that. And he must do it in the resurrection of the dead. And he must do that millions and billions and trillions of times over to rectify the cosmos. Yes, there are certain things we can do now to mollify and mitigate evil. But often we overestimate what we can do. We need God 
to raise the dead. So thirsting for righteousness without thirsting for bodily resurrection is an inconceivable thing in Holy Scripture. As I said, the whole Christian life is lived on the other side of death. By faith, right now, you are partaking of Jesus' eschatological risen life. So the whole Christian life is lived on that side of the coming resurrection. It's an astonishing thing to think about. There is no feature of the Christian life that's lived out of this age. It's all lived out of the risen Christ, and he's exalted in glory. Or another way to put this, this is shocking, really. It's shocking because it messes with your sense of things. There are not two resurrections in Christianity. Jesus' resurrection and then your resurrection. There's one resurrection. The New Testament teaches this over and over again. There's one harvest, one general resurrection at the end of the age of everyone, the first fruits of which is Jesus, and he's already been reaped. And you know what that means? That means the general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age is already underway. It's astonishing. Right? So, of course we thirst for bodily resurrection. It's what it means to be a Christian. David grasped this in the Old Covenant. In Psalm 17, he says this, As for me, I will be vindicated. I will see your face when I awake. And here he means when I am raised. He means after he dies. I will see your face when I awake. I will be satisfied. That's our word in this text. I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. So what does David say? The great king, he says, when I am raised from the dead, I will be vindicated and then I will be satisfied because I will see the face of God. So we are looking for a day In this age, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Personal righteousness, social righteousness, political righteousness. That is definitely part of this text. But we are looking for the day in the words of the book of Revelation, chapter 7, when they shall hunger no more, nor neither shall they thirst. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. In short, to hunger and thirst is, and we heard this in the New Testament lesson, in the words of 2 Peter 3, it is to look for, to pant after a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness, undefiled righteousness, and only righteousness dwells. If you you heard the reading, the text said, the, the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. We are not looking panting, yearning, groaning for a situation where there's a little more righteousness than there is now. Or even a lot more righteousness than there is now. We are yearning, panting, and groaning for a situation where all evil is abolished. All of it. Past, present, future. In us, in everybody, in the whole creation. That is what we want. right? To want less than that, to yearn for less than that, is to settle for squalor. In light of this vision. That's why 2 Peter 3 says, We are yearning for a new heavens and new earth, which is the very home, the very dwelling place, the very habitation of righteousness. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And only by this panting, by the way, as Lewis put it so beautifully, can you be formed to be the kind of person who does real good in this age. 
Aim at heaven and get the earth thrown in. Aim at heaven, you'll get the earth thrown in. Amen.